0: So if you would, allow me to give a a little bit of a longer introduction by starting with something kind of silly. Suppose I were to bring a man up here who had no idea what the ocean was or is, but he so desperately wanted you to tell him, to explain it to him, to learn of it. So I'd say, I brought this man up here, what would you tell him? You don't have to cry out. It's okay. But what would we tell them? I suppose we try to describe the ocean by saying things like, well, it's, it looks like glass. Or it's blue and green hues like emeralds and sapphires. It's very big. And if you were to measure the ocean, it'd be the size of many, many continents. Okay, so forget that. How about suppose we were to bring a woman up here who has never tasted honey. What might we tell her? Oh, it's... It's thick and it's rich and it's like liquid gold, I guess. Suppose we were to bring up a forgotten jungle tribe who live in huts and explain to them electricity. It is like a sun in the middle of your room. Suppose we were going to explain carnivals to Martians. Suppose we were going to explain Halloween to St. Peter of the very Bibles we're holding. What would we say? It sounds crazy. How unbelievably challenging. To find the vocabulary. I think often, gosh, I'm a younger parent, but I, when I try to keep up with what my son is describing, some of his lingo, where is, is my son in here? Some of his lingo is insane. Dad, that's liddy. Whoa, oh, you got to catch the whoa. What else? I try to write some of it down. Every time I tell my, son, tell my son something and he doesn't like it, he's like, oh, that is a rip in the chat. It's like, what? <laughs> Or and every time he wants to do something, he says, all right, bet. It's like, what do you, we're betting money? I'm not going to gamble with you. Bet, dad, bet. Stupid. But maybe it's as simple as the man who's never seen the ocean or St. Peter or myself. Maybe it's as simple as we're just too glib. We're too glib to know what modern practices and what cultures of other cultures are like. Well, of course not. Certain people, at certain times, in certain places, don't have the categories. We do not have the categories. And if we agree upon that, then where in the world does one begin to explain the throne room of God? This thing called heaven. Heaven is referred to around 550 times in the Bible. 50 of those times is just in the book of Revelation. Revelation a book with so much symbolism, we barely contain the categories to capture the the sheer, ineffable, inexpressible, glorious nature of Revelation's vision. The Old Testament's word for heaven, it means the heights. That even showing us that it's, it's higher than our expectations. Because I, you know, as your pastor, will be first to admit that most of Revelation, if not all of it, Most of Revelation has a fanciful quality to it, right? It feels more like science fiction than it does a future hope. But that's because for so many of us, its symbolic heights have not yet quite landed in our hearts. So my point or my goal for the day is to put more earth, physicality, dirt, bark, and salt water into all of our heavenly sensibilities, You see, just as Adam was formed from dust, there is this purpose and this mandate with the earth that God has given you and he has given me, Christian. And any aspect of our faith which denies the significance of material, the fleshly or the earthbound, is sadly half true. Half true. So as Pastor Isaac alluded to a couple weeks ago, what we are seeing now, this present day earth, is is an idea of a template, a shadow. Or as C.S. Lewis calls, a rehearsal. This is a rehearsal. All I have to say is that the new heaven or the new earth is more familiar than we know. In your Bible, sometimes heaven is called a country. That should like, ring bells in our mind going, well, I know what a country is. expanse, territories and nationalities. Sometimes heaven in the Bible is referred to as a city. We know what cities are. We're familiar with with art and music and culture and goods and services. Sometimes in our Bible, the uh, the heaven is called a paradise because of its beauty. We know what beautiful paradise looks like. There's high hills and overgrown trees and crashing waves. Is this making sense? I love how Frederick Buechner says this in light of heaven. He's talking about heaven here. He says, one of the blunders of religious people particularly fond of making uh, is the attempt to be more spiritual than God. We have done this with heaven. So all of this must awaken in us that, yes, we were made from the earth, but today's scripture shows us that we were also made for the new earth. But if it's so similar, then what's the difference? What is the difference? What makes this new earth new? That is my job for today. That's my job. So, when Revelation 21, a chapter so cosmic in size, and let me just apologize. You could have a thousand sermons for every single word in chapter 21. It is so cosmic, it is so big. I'm going to do the biggest injustice of all time and have to jump around. So, please forgive me. Be cool. Send emails to Isaac. Whatever. I don't don't send me any. But when it uses the word new, it's meant to indicate It's not meant to indicate that the earth is simply just new as compared to old. When it's talking about a new earth or a new heaven, it's new in quality. It's new and superior as far as character or life. So understand this is before we get into it. The earth's death is no more final than our own. Okay. Theologian G.K. Beale says, New creation, new, new is the plausible and defensible center for New Testament theology. In other words, this is the center of our faith. This resurrection form. So after all of that, please turn to Revelation chapter 21, if you're not there yet. We're going to be looking at three dynamics of newness from this chapter. And the author, the Apostle John, who was beyond privileged to witness this in vision form, but he was banished due to his faith, By the Roman government on the island of Patmos. Now, when you think of Patmos or this island banishing, you must think of Alcatraz. It's teeny, it's rocky, it's barren. And this was the perfect floating prison for anybody who was beaten, boiled in tar, shackled, and starving. So have that in your noodles right now as we read Revelation 21, because this is where and who the suffering apostle is as he's on this floating prison. He writes these words. Revelation 21, verse 1, allow this to punch you in the face. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down, coming down, coming down. No escaping souls, but heaven and earth becoming one coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death and death and death shall be no more. So our first point of newness is physically new. Physically new. But God tells John by describing that by what's not present. He starts with the negative. What's not there. And what's not present are the the somethings that we all hate with a passion. We hate them more than anything else. Look again, just very quickly, but no more death. There's no more death. I was thinking about just our lifespan as a church, these last four or five years, and just for our small family here, not even the rest of LA or the world or whatever, but just for our small family here, the amount of mourning and grieving we've done, it's quite immense and it's just the 200 of us. The mourning that we've done for deceased mothers, or unborn babies, or friends, For loved ones, for sisters, for bosses. And yet here, we're told there will be no more death or loss of any kind. And then it goes on to say, Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. The Old Testament talks about this as well, but it calls this crying the cry of the distress. Are we not a generation plagued by the locus of distress? Or at least a city? Anxiety, worry, sexual addictions, sexual concerns, busyness, depression. And then to think it will be stomped out. Verse 4 continues. Nor pain for the former things have passed away. Again, chronic illnesses those with aching joints, migraines, tumors. I think of my best friend in the world, Lorenzo, in this past week with his heart, his heart issues. No more. It is gone. These are powerful, powerful words. Listen, though. Our hope isn't in for fixing them. Our hope isn't in forgetting them. They become non-existent. Make sure this sits in the center of all of your theology. Jesus' victorious resurrection is the preview upon which to understand our eternity. One more time. Jesus' victorious resurrection is the preview upon which to understand our eternity. See, if you battle with any of the things that I rattled off and more, there will be a day where you will stand over it in victory, just as Christ stood over the grave. So whatever that is for you, I hate this part about me. I hate this pain. It will be death. It will find death very powerful. And that exists because if death and pain and tears are gone, then the body as we know it, gone. Gone. Showing all of us that our final hope is not in disembodied spirits, but physically and bodily new. And we must believe this most fully. We must. The New Testament elsewhere pushes this idea even more by saying, who will transform our lowly body To be like his glorious body. Christ's bodily resurrection is our promise. See, there's no hope unless this is a palpable, touchable, knowable, tasteable future. I'm not going to stand up here week after week preaching some fart cloud, you know, ethereal dimension. Yuck. I'm not going to establish, and I would not want this church to establish their life on that. But I know with this idea of a new body comes many questions. A new body, physical body that comes with many concerns or thoughts or inquiries. So I'm going to do the best I can for the next few moments to try to answer those questions. Questions like, will I be uber hot in heaven? (laughs) Well, it's, it's hard to perfect perfection. It's hard. But will I be male or female? Will I be chubby or not? please god Whew. well i have all five senses and so on now just a fun word of warning never ask this question to the apostle paul in the bible of the new testament here's why in the book of corinthians but someone will ask what kind of body do they have come you know and then paul's response you foolish person hey paul what kind of body you're an idiot all right that's his response you're an idiot But we can answer, forget Paul, we're going to answer these curiosities (laughs) by understanding our present. Think this in. To understand our future bodies, we have to understand greater our present, present bodies. So for an example, God created fat for the body, and that's good. Thus, fat glands will be present in heaven. Sucks. (laughs) Yes, we will have our senses, and they are good and God-given. Yes, we will have our genders in the same way that Christ did after his resurrection. You see palpable touchable, editable, living hope. How about this? Even consider the mind and its abilities. In the new earth, you will not all of a sudden be able to throw a perfect free throw. Is that what they're called? Free throws? I I don't know. Whatever. You will not be able to. We won't be able to juggle perfectly, or we will not know a tale of two cities by memory. No. We still have to learn in heaven. Omniscience, the doctrine of knowing everything, is not a communicable attribute of God, okay? So yes, I believe we will learn. I believe there will be vast libraries in heaven. I think we'll be able to learn other languages, nationalities, the guitar, gardening, or how to throw a basketball. That sounds like a hell to me, but how to throw a basketball. But then on the other hand, on the other hand, there does seem to be some bodily changes, For example, age-wise, I believe it's wise to consider that all bodies will have both, will have a perfected state, no signs of decay like Christ. And then yet, this is more speculative, I believe we all, no matter point of death, will be mature in form. Okay? And moreover than that, still grounding our heavenly sensibilities in present understandings, yes, we will have the same identities. If I am casey here, I will be casey there. Okay? So we'll love. And we'll laugh and we'll delight, and it'll be mo- emotional um, ebbs and flows. All the right and true emotions will be there, all of them, except sadness. There'll be no sadness in heaven whatsoever. That will have no part in resurrection country, as in, there is nothing to be sad over. And just as we experience physical newness, so will the very creation around us. If you would, I would invite you for just a moment to sit and allow me to read some, some verses over you. I just want these to sort of puncture your imaginations and your thoughts about creation. They're verses from Revelation 21. Just sit and for a moment. Again, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Church, be blown away by this entire chapter about what we consider wealth, heaven considers common. Verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. So much safety. And there will be no night there. And they will bring into glory and the honor of the nations. St. Augustine tried to capture the sheer beauty of this as he said, if these are the the beauties, like present beauties, afforded to sinful men, what does God have in store for those who love him? We don't have the categories. So these visionary depictions gives us whiffs of safety, like I said, rich energy of vibrant life and activity. But they're also showing us that the work of Christ, as we must understand, is to not just save people. No, no, no. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem the entire creation from sin and evil which intertwined itself back in the garden. For a moment, remember that the very garden where death and curse were birthed to the new earth where it finds its death. This is why there is no sea. The sea, though, is more often in the Bible regarded as symbolic evil, chaos, and even a place of death. So yes, hopefully everybody gets happy about this. So yes, I believe there will be water and sea and surfing and whatever people do at the beach. I believe that will still be there. You can believe whatever you want. You're probably wrong. But I believe it'll still be there. It's talking about, it's symbolic of evil and chaos. But let's continue. I want us to recall creation for a moment and new creation. Eden, paradise lost. New earth, paradise regained. Garden, a redeemer is promised. New earth, a redeemer returns. Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21, I saw new heavens and a new earth. Eden, failure, new earth, triumph. These creation parallels are, are far too marvelous and remarkable to be anything but deliberate. Hence, our future world should feel like deja vu. As a mirror image is so perfectly the symmetry of God's plan for all, for all, for all of creation. We have to view this as like a sort of global rehab project of sorts, okay? All right, let's get into even crazier stuff from Revelation 21. This is going to get weird. Bear with me. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels, who were the seven bowls full of seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we have a woman marrying a lamb. Everybody with me? (laughs) Wild. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God. Verse 11. Having the glory of God, its ratings like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This is okay. Verse 16. This is where it gets weird. The city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width uh, are equal to its height. Okay. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also, if everybody wants to know this, which is also an angel's measurement. (laughs) You know John just wrote that. It's like, I've been wondering. Yes! (laughs) But let's soak this up for a moment. Let's soak this up. A city is coming out of the sky. There's a lamb marrying a woman. Normal. And a city is apparently measured in such a way that it's about 1,400 miles long, wide height, the whole deal. It's perfectly equal. Making the measurement, it's going to sound like dune or whatever. It's making this measurement a giant cube. It's a giant cube. What in the freaking world? That's weird. I don't want to live in a cube. <laughs> so Collective Church, what kind of newness is this wild stuff? Well, let, me, let me get to that point. I think Christians can all agree that if we thought long and hard enough, the greatest frustration of our day, of this age, is the presence of sin. Let me explain that. The best definition of sin that I've ever heard is this. It's when we try to satisfy our innate longing for God with everything but God. That's good, right? That's really good. I want to say it came up with it, but I don't remember who said it. One more time, it's when we try to satisfy our innate longing for God with everything but God. This is that warring between what we want to do and who we want to be and our inability to get there. So this plays out in our life with, I really want to love this jerk, but I say hurtful things. Or it plays out in our life when I really want to worship today, but I feel cold. This plays out in our life by saying, I want to walk in peace, but I feel absolute anxiety or hatred or whatever it could possibly be. It plays out, I want to be, have, be pure in thought, but lust bombards my imaginations. And as we've been told countless times, this mutiny of God and what he offers brought a division, a separation. And for centuries, the people of Jerusalem knew God only through curtains, through veils, through walls, and through outer courts. Most famously, the temple. That's the only way to try to get close enough to God, the temple. Now, though, now... If you were to study the temple and its dimensions, what you would discover is its incredible similarities to this odd cube vision. You with me? And it's here we discover what kind of newness this is. This is spiritual, moral newness. Not just in part as we have now, but in completion. So pay attention. The sin barrier removed so completely that the new earth is now the Holy of Holies. It is the dwelling place. It is the tabernacle. Nothing is hidden from us and the divine. Notice the word, the wording in verse 11 when it refers to the new Jerusalem. Having the glory of God. Whereas verse 2 says, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed. So this new Jerusalem is a people. A people who are prepared and given God's glory, a glory that will purify so deeply and so thoroughly that we will be like, you and I will be like Christians, a rare jewel, clear as crystal. Again, categories, imaginations, bear with me. We will be like a, a, a jasper or, or a crystal, unbelievably an image where you can see straight through it. So here's what I mean I'm going to explain that. We all crave to be extremely vulnerable with one another. Let's be a vulnerable community. We say it all the time discipleship groups, vulnerability. Yes, it's good. But there's no one we at all let fully in. Ever. Ever. We hide our deepest and darkest wanderings and desires, don't we? But the heaven dwellers, so pure, so clear, that we will be able to look at and symbolically see straight through without seeing any impurity, nothing hidden, nothing shameful. And this refining makes so much sense as God brings spiritual and moral newness for the fullest union with him. Who struggles this morning with receiving his love? I don't know if you do or not. Like really receiving his love to the point where you believe his words or that you trust that he is good or the way that he sees you. This marriage will be so will finally make us so capable of receiving, with no part of us trying to hide from his loving eyes. No shame, no fear. Friends, this is why there's no marriage in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. The Bible says, Jesus says that in the Gospels. Yes, I will know my wife, wherever she's at. I will know her, and she will know me, but we will not be married. And for any of us thinking, well, that sounds silly and off-putting, allow that to melt away as we try to read Revelation 21, with our limited imaginations, to see that all sexual pleasure in marriage, all the intimate nature between a husband and a wife, all of that richness of that union will pale in comparison to the rapture of pleasure that is found here in this new oneness. We don't even, again, have the categories to understand. And singles here, I know singleness is a sucking vacuum of emotions. I do. But find deep solace here in these verses as we all long for this union which surpasses. We all long, merit or not, for this union which surpasses the present one. Amen? But let's slow down. I need to slow down. I started this, if you think, if you were here, we started this eternal series by us discussing our expectations in heaven. Do you remember? We kept calling it or just understanding that heaven is supposed to be our own personal pleasure factory. And the biblical truth presented over these last five weeks shows something a little bit more objective or more different. So after all of this, if you're here and you're a skeptic or a doubter or a rejecter, I'm just so curious, after the last five weeks, if you've been here or just here today, if any of this sounds remotely attractive. Yeah, I can get behind the no anxiety thing, yeah. That sounds cool. I can give you a no-death thing for sure. Sure. This is desirable. Yeah, maybe, possibly. But, 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 is it the marriage or is it the Jesus thing that is ruining anyone's eternal paradise? Allow me to recall the words of author C.S. Lewis who says, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only meaning heaven is a physical extension of God himself. A pleasure factory removed from its maker is no more than a honeymoon with no spouse. It is an experience with no encounter. It is a beach with no sun. It is a palace with no king. And it is a, it is a home with no family. I could only hope that what comes across today or these last five weeks is that without God, a godless, a Christless heaven is hell. Our eternal paradise, is with God removed, is hell. The great Scottish minister, Samuel Rutherford, says it this way. Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and still have thee, it would be a heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. So for those here who don't believe or shun this idea of Christ and his truth and the gospel, what might be the draw towards a Christless heaven for you? If you haven't yet put words to it, allow me to read Revelation 21, verse 8. This might help. It should be on the screen. But, these are hard words. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is an extremely arresting verse that nobody wants to consider its many facets or sin of eternity. But the more you sit with verse 8, Hopefully, it's still behind me. Leave it up for just a second, Ross, please. But the more you sit with this, examine it, what this list is, once we realize it, this is a list of why people reject this marriage. This is why people reject Jesus. I mean, right? Some were faithless. I didn't find Christ trustworthy. Some would rather be God of their own, of others' lives. Murder. Some would rather be God of their sex lives. Sexual morality. Some would rather be God of their own spirituality. Sorcery. But two on this list do not fit. Cowardly? When was being a coward a sin? That doesn't make a lick of sense. It's not. It's not a sin. What this means is those who could not and would not endure in the Christian faith. It's those who tried Christianity and disregarded it when the weight of faith got too heavy. We spent a year dealing with this in the book of Hebrews. Is there anyone here today possibly rejecting Christianity because it's just too hard? Heed Revelation's warning, please. The other one that brings pause is the mention of liars. Terrifying. Is it not? Right? I'm gonna to go to hell because I told a white lie. What's interesting about this is this notion of liars is in Revelation 2.2, this is the exact same word used for those who called themselves apostles when they were in fact not. Are we tracking? Claiming to be God's people even though they reject Christ. Liar. Claiming spirituality, rejecting the spirit liar. Individuals who claim Christ, go to church, serve, open the Bible, but live most unbelievably, radically antithetical lives to that claim. Liar. To me, this is far worse than cowardice. Well, at least a more mutated form of it. I bring none of this up to stir up shame or frustration. I bring this up because of verse 2. Look at verse 2. This almost slips by too quickly. And I saw the holy city. Not I saw the holy garden, and I saw a holy city. Heaven as a city? This should not be, right? This doesn't make any sense. Yeah, maybe ultimate garden of Eden, but not a city. Why do I say that? Well, if we look through the Bible, who invented the city? Cain, the brother killer, in Genesis chapter 4 cultivated a social reality to shield himself from God. A city is more than a collection of buildings and culture. We know that. The city started as a man-made effort of human self-sufficiency. But this is our God. He doesn't damn this city to hell. He transforms it into heaven. If we let him... This God will take our cowardice and our lies and our murder and our abortions and our fears and our jealousies and our divorces and our failures. And he looks at them and he cries out in verse 6, it is done. Jesus cried out, it is finished for all of the payment for wrongdoing and sin, completely paid in full. But that doesn't mean that right now, even though the payment's finished, we're not struggling Struggling with pornography, masturbation, struggling with anger. We struggle still. There's still toil. But not here. The Alpha and Omega in verse 6 cries out It is done. There is no more toil. I've redeemed every aspect of you. This is a city, this is a heavenly city. And because of this, the most powerful reality we only know in anticipation now is there in full consummation, giving our last newness, which is new relationally. Making heaven's greatest gift, not its beauty, but its unimpeded unimpeded access with God. Making heaven's greatest gift, not the absence of tears, no, but the one who wipes them. It's not the extinction of death, but the one who paid the death toll. This is why I love the book of Psalms as it sings out, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. No more veil, no more distance, no more temple, no more mystery, no more long distance relationship. It's as Revelation 22.4 4 says, and allow this to just melt us. They, we will see his face. You guys remember the Old Testament? Anybody who tried to see God, it's like, you're going to die. God told Moses, I can show you like a small little hair on my back. And Moses' face glowed for like 10 weeks. And here, they will see his face. Family, we did not do this series to bring some sort of inner peace. Gross. We did not do this series to academically uh, exercise our church. Even grosser. These words were written to inspire hope to the Christian, and to to the intensely weary, to the severely persecuted. John, the author, was writing to people under the Roman Empire who were targeted and crucified upside down. They were filleted alive, and they were fed to lions. This is who the book of Revelation was written for in that day. And you think, if you ponder that, that is the only way Christianity probably survived its attempted genocide. Because witnesses would see this martyr hope how the persecuted often sang during crucifixions. They love their enemies and they face hardships joyfully. And the witnesses around them seeing as they're being murdered, you know what they would cry out or what they'd think in their heart? These people are not of this world. I want that. What world are they a part of? Our citizenship, is, it's in heaven. So I'll finish with this. John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, which means so much to me. It's it's genius because it demonstrates the Christian life in graphic allegory. And there's a conversation between two pilgrims who are on their way to the celestial city, which of course is heaven. And one of the pilgrims says to the other, pay attention, this is great. When do you find yourself in the most wholesome and vigorous spiritual state? The other pilgrim says, when I think of the place to which I am going. To you, it's a living hope only when it's transforming your present day living. If it doesn't, then to us individually, it's a dead hope. Unless it transforms our daily living, it is not living to you. When I think of the place to which I am going, if you feel hopeless today in parenting and love and vocation in your faith, Start today by just admitting it and then allowing the church to be the church and pray over you. Please. To intercede for you. We're going to have prayer people up against that wall between the sconces and two people over here against the wall who want to pray for you. I completely ask and encourage you to go and receive that today, couples, singles, whatever it is. Today during our time of response, we realize that God is inviting inviting us to be something of heaven on earth. Do we realize that? So that people can see Pay close attention to this. So that people can see that trusting Jesus really counts for something. If we want to answer the invitation, then we bet on Jesus. We bet our entire life on Jesus. We believe and we practice the words, it is done. Making the promise overrule selfish impulses or individualized direction. This is why we celebrate communion, which is up here on my right and on my left. We do this every week because we're biblically told to, but we also believe because it's an act of recalibration as it's a meal for the cowards. It is a meal for the cowards to be courageous and say, I need to hope in something other than myself. As it's for the liars to encounter truth and it's for the faithless to the faithful to basically pound our breast by saying Revelation 22, 20. Holy smokes, the last words in the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We need to pray.